morning, church. My name is Elaine. We're going to move on to a time of reading the Bible now. So the Bible reading for today is Exodus 13, chapter 17, and that's starting on page 96 on the Bibles in front of you in the pews. And then we're going to read until chapter 14, verse 31. And so last week, we saw God's final judgment come upon Egypt as every firstborn son dies. And we also saw God save his people as he passes over the Israelite households, which had the blood of a lamb painted on their doorframes. So as God's people, the Israelites, embark on their journey to the promised land, let's see what happens next, because God is still not finished with Egypt. So Exodus 13, um, starting at verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hiroth between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think, The Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. 
Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front, of the, in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so that neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let us get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went to the sea on went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Thank you, Elaine. Can I ask you to turn back in your Bibles to the start of the reading, which you'll find verse 17 of chapter 13. You'll need to have that open in front of you. Um, And at the same time, please grab one of these leaflets. Uh, If you didn't pick one up on the way in, they should be at the doors. Inside, as always, there's a reasonably detailed outline of what we're going to cover. There's a couple of extra Bible passages in there. This will save you having to look them up. So if you have them in front of you, you'll find that really helpful. Okay, well, last week, uh, the Passover felt like a major turning point in this epic saga. Uh, With it, God rescues an entire nation from slavery, uh, and they're now on their way to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But it seems that God has unfinished business with Egypt because Pharaoh still hasn't given up. Not even the death of every firstborn son is enough to convince him to stand down and leave God's people alone. 
And that means that God's people are still vulnerable. They are refugees on the run. And Pharaoh is going to send his mighty army after them. Well, let's see what happens. Point one on your handout, on the way to the promised land, Exodus 13, 17 through 22. Uh, the first part of the reading uh, begins with a potential problem, a positive sign and a great reassurance. A potential problem, a positive sign and a great reassurance. You can see each of those notes there on your handout. Firstly, a potential problem. Pick it up with me in verse 17. Verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God didn't lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Uh, Here's the potential problem. Uh, Despite their miraculous deliverance from Egypt, God's people are still very fragile. So they left in haste in the middle of the night, but they might lose heart in the harsh reality of the cold light of day. Which, of course, is a pretty fair concern, given that what we've seen so far in Exodus is the fact that the Israelites have hardly covered themselves in glory. They have been sceptical, doubtful, at times outright hostile towards Moses. Because, as we've been seeing in this story, there on your handout, it's not like Israel was any better or more deserving than Egypt. So there's a potential problem... But there's also a positive sign. There's a positive sign because for once, the Israelites actually get something right. Look at verse 19 with me. Verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He'd said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. Now, what's all this about? Well, it's actually taking us back in time to the promise that Joseph made the Israelites swear 400 years earlier when they first came to Egypt. Uh, In fact, you can see the passage there in Genesis chapter 50. This is the previous book in the Bible. Let me read out a couple of verses. They're there on your handout. Genesis 50 verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and and Jacob. Joseph made the Israelites swear on oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Which is exactly what the Israelites do. They take Joseph's bones with them as they leave Egypt. It is, once again, on your handout, it's a reminder, we belong to a bigger and better story. You see, the promise that the Israelites made to Joseph, that promise is meant to point us towards the even greater promises that God made to them through Abraham. Because in many many ways, the best way to understand Exodus, Exodus is this grand sweeping story that's all about promises made and promises that get kept. And so the third thing we notice as they make their way to the promised land, there on your handout, number three, a great reassurance. A great reassurance. See, as the Israelites head off into the unknown, we know that in the past, God has always been faithful to his people and to his promises. But what we're going to get now is a great reassurance that he is still with them, even now. Look at me at verse 21 of chapter 13. Verse 21 By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Well, 
I suppose I'd just like to point out that this is perhaps the greatest navigation system that's ever been devised. There's a pillar of cloud during the day, there's a pillar of fire at night to guide them on their way. Which is a great relief and a great reassurance because it means that wherever they go, they will never be alone because God himself is with them. And it is worth pointing out that uh, something that's I think helpful for us to hear about the way God leads and guides us. You notice here that in being with them by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, God doesn't give them the entire route that they're going to need to take for the next 40 years. Actually, his guidance is only one day at a time. I guess I want to point that out because, to be honest, that's pretty challenging for lots of us. Challenging for those of us who, if truth be told we would much rather see the whole process laid out in detail before we're willing to commit to even one step forward. I get that, but that's not how God works. What God does is that he gives us the destination and he gives us enough for the next move. And he promises to tell us more when we're ready to handle it. As I said, that can be a bit confronting, At the same time, I think it's actually a sign of God's kindness to us. Because again, to be honest, imagine he told us everything on the first day about what lay ahead. I often used to say to university students that imagine what it would be like if on your first day at university they gave you all the assignments for the next five years. Probably be a little bit overwhelming. Well, the Israelites are on their way to the promised land. Uh, Point two on your handout, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Uh, As I said before, it turns out that the Egyptians still haven't learnt their lesson. They're still not finished with their slaves. But neither is God finished with them. Uh, Two things there on your handout. Firstly, what the king of Egypt does, verses 5 through 9. Let's see what the Pharaoh does at this point. Pick it up with me in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled... Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and lost their services. We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. Now, this is fascinating, isn't it? It's so revealing. It's an insight into Pharaoh's mind. Because all he's thinking about is his own predicament. Uh, The fact that we have no more slaves to do our dirty work for us. He doesn't even consider the root cause of his problem. That's God's judgment for their cruel, century-long mistreatment of the Hebrews. Plus the fact that Pharaoh has stubbornly refused to heed the ten warnings that God has already given him. Even the death of every Egyptian firstborn son has not softened Pharaoh's heart. And as we saw, as we've seen at a number of points, uh, often I hear from people who aren't Christian... Uh, things, them, them say things like, if God gave me a sign, I'd believe or I'd repent. And I want to acknowledge that sometimes that's a very genuine request. But sadly, sometimes it's just a smokescreen. It's a deflection. Because what we're seeing in Exodus time and time again is that actually the more you ignore God, the harder it is to change your mind and to admit you were wrong. One of the takeaways, I think, is for me to 
is to me to say, please don't make the same mistakes as Pharaoh because he's about to lose everything. So the king of Egypt, he musters his army to send them after his former slaves and yet, point two on your handout, God is still in control. God is still in control of this situation. Because even as Pharaoh mobilises his army, God insists, look with me at verse 4, verse 4, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. It is a great relief to know that even as Pharaoh marches out with his mighty army, and I say it's a mighty army because you probably noticed as Elaine read it out, it kept talking over and over again about horses and chariots, uh, over and over and over again. Basically, horses and chariots were the ancient world's equivalent of tanks. So he's sending tanks out against women and children who are on foot. God's people look incredibly vulnerable. But God is in control and God will still be glorified. And yet, his people are far from assured. Point three, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Uh, At this point, the scene changes to the Israelites who see the army approaching uh, and they're not particularly uh, reassured. Pick it up with me in verse 10. I'm just going to read out verses 10 through 12. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified. They cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Well... We're aware of Egypt's unbelief, but now we see the unbelief of God's own people, of the Israelites. We're seeing what God's people are made of, and quite frankly, it's not very positive, and it's not all that surprising, because, once again, it's not like Israel was any better or more deserving than Egypt. Now, let me acknowledge, I understand that in times of stress, it is very easy to panic, It's to forget the things that actually we know to be true. But you have to say that verse 12 is absurd. Verse 12, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. That's what they say. Really? They're saying it would have been better for us to be enslaved for another century under a brutal regime where a pharaoh could order the death of all their baby boys. That's better than serving the God who has just liberated them from Egypt. Obviously, God's people still doubt God's power. And so, point four then, near the bottom left of your handout, the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians. Uh, We're going to see what happens next, and I'm going to read out verses 13 and 14. As I do, I'd love for you to try and answer this question as I read it out. Here's the question. Who will save the Israelites now? Who will save the Israelites now? God or them? 
Okay, pick it up with me, verse 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. It's pretty hard to miss the point, isn't it? Do not be afraid, he says, but stand firm and you will see. That is, there is no need for you to take matters into your own hands. Just watch and observe what God does. And what they're to see? You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today because the Egyptians you see today, you're never going to see them ever again. There's God's promise for his people. And to really hammer the point home, Moses concludes, the Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. You get the point, right? Stand firm. Be still. You will see the Lord will fight for you. It's true. Egypt is a global superpower. Remember all those chariots? Egypt is a global superpower. Israel, nothing more than a ragtag bunch of refugee ex-slaves who have no land of their own. But God says, don't worry. Trust me. I've got this. Now, we don't need to linger over the graphic details of what takes place in the rest of chapter 14. Excuse me. Uh, We all know how the story is going to end. That night, God holds back the Red Sea and the Israelites cross over safely. And when the Egyptians start to follow, once the Israelites are safe on the other side, God allows the water to flow again. Look at how verse 28 concludes down the bottom of, of the page there on your Bible reading. Verse 28, the water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. Not one of them survived. Well, let me say that unfortunately for the water engineers here, there is no interest in the mechanics of the miracle. We're not told how all of this took place. Instead, the emphasis in the passage is on the meaning of the miracle. Why did it happen? What are the implications? There's actually two things that come from this passage. The first meaning of this event, the first is that Pharaoh's army must be destroyed or else God's people will never be safe. I'll say it again. Pharaoh's army must be destroyed or else God's people will never be safe. They will always be looking back over their shoulder unless God deals with the army. Here's the second meaning of the event. It's even more important. Because of what God has done, the whole world is going to hear about it. Because of what God has done at the Red Sea, the whole world is going to hear about it. You see, Egypt's strength came from her slaves. That's how they built the pyramids. Their economic might came from their slaves. And Israel, uh, Egypt's power, militarily, it came from its army. And both are now gone. Along with all of their firstborn sons. It's saying that God's, God's judgment has fallen on Egypt. And as we're going to see in a moment, that means that the nations of the world will sit up and start paying attention 
to this people and to their God. Well, what's perhaps most remarkable about this whole episode is that for once the Israelites actually get it right. They actually do put their trust in God. Look at how it finishes in verse 31. Verse 31 of chapter 14. It's actually printed there on your handout. When the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, were told the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses his servant. The Israelites feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses his servant. In fact, not just the Israelites recognise that this is God's work, even Pharaoh's own army understands. Just look with me at verse 25 of chapter 14. Verse 25 of chapter 14. God jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. The Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Isn't that interesting? That's exactly what God had promised would happen right back in, chapter, in verse 4. Remember he said, the Egyptians will know, I am the Lord. And at this moment, the army does as well. It's telling us that one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will acknowledge that God is the Lord. Willingly or unwillingly, either joyfully rejoicing at his reign or as a last, final, futile act of defiance. Well, so what for us? Come to the right-hand side of your handout. What I want to do is just um, offer you three reflections as to what this story means for us today. And you'll see each of them printed there on your handout. Firstly, praise God. Praise God. Uh, Imagine, if you will, that you are an Israelite standing on the far side of the Red Sea, looking back as Pharaoh's army comes thundering across and the waters crash over, washing them away. What's your reaction going to be? It's a pretty easy answer, I think. Surely you would rejoice. You would be praising God for his deliverance. And my guess is that having seen that, you would never, ever, ever doubt him again. Mm, Actually, as we're going to see next week, that's not the case, but we'll come back to that. But you understand what I'm saying? At this particular moment, as God rescues his people... Surely the right response is to praise him. What I want to say today is that the point of God's intervention at the Red Sea, it's not to cause us to gloat over the demise of our enemies. It's actually meant to lead us to celebrate the magnitude and totality of his deliverance. We are to praise him, which is exactly what the people are going to do in chapter 15. And in fact, that's what we're going to do in just a few moments to conclude our time together. Okay, so the first thing, praise God. Second thing, uh, you'll see I've written there on your handout. It's a reminder of how the episode ends. The people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Uh, I've already hinted at this, actually. I said that what's amazing is that the Israelites actually do the right thing for once. They actually understand what they're meant to do. But that what's even more remarkable is that the surrounding nations start to fear the Lord as well. The inhabitants of the promised land, 
the place where the Israelites are heading. They hear about what God has done to Egypt to rescue his people Israel. And as a result, some of them put their trust in God as well. Not many, but some. People like Rahab, whose story you'll see there on your handout from Joshua chapter 2. I'm just going to read out this short section. Uh, This is a few books ahead in the Bible. Um, Here in Joshua, Israel has finally made it to the promised land. They send spies in to check it out. These spies happen to meet Rahab, an inhabitant. Look at what she does. Joshua chapter 2 verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, Rahab went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear. And everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. So then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Do you remember what God's promises to Abraham were back in Genesis 12? that through him would come a great nation in a land that would be a blessing and that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him as well. People, it seems, like Rahab. Rahab, who is saved and from whom eventually will come Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because, once again, you and I, we belong to a bigger and better story. Third implication for us, bottom right of your handout, recognise which promises of God we can depend on today. Recognise which promises of God we can depend on today. Uh, You'll see that I said there on your handout that I want to say something about how we read the Old Testament as Christians, how we read the Old Testament as Christians. Uh, It's a good point for me just to make a couple of comments here. Firstly, we don't read the Old Testament moralistically. That is, you don't read the Old Testament looking for examples of what we should do in imitation of the people in the Old Testament. Mostly because, as we've seen, generally, the Old Testament characters don't do a very good job. So actually, you don't read the Old Testament looking just to repeat what they've done. That would be moralistic. Rather, as Christians, we read the Old Testament theologically. That is, to see what it says what God is like and why is worthy of praise. And above all, as Christians, we read the Old Testament Christologically, that is, seeing how it points us to Jesus, who is the culmination and fulfilment of all of God's promises. What I'm saying is that when Christians read the Old Testament, we don't expect that God is going to repeat for us what he did back then. You know, if I can put it this way, there is no expectation that God will part the Red Sea in your life, whatever it is. Because everything that God did back then in Exodus, he did to fulfil his promises to Abraham. 
And since then, he's brought those very precious promises to Abraham to a glorious completion in Jesus. And he's done it in a way that is bigger and better and broader and more brilliant and more beautiful in every way. I ran out of bees. I thought about Bonza, right? Like everything about it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. That's actually the reason why we Christians today have an even greater cause to celebrate than God's people on the edge of the Red Sea. We have a greater reason to celebrate. Because what we've seen is not just the fall of the Egyptian army, we have seen God in Christ defeat Satan and even death itself. A couple of verses there on your handout from the New Testament, from Colossians 2. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. But perhaps most significantly, 1 Corinthians 15. For Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. What does all this mean for us? Well, today I want to say... If you're here as someone who's not a Christian, who's trying to work out what the big deal is about Jesus, can I invite you to come and join us? Come and join us, because what Jesus is doing is inviting all the peoples of the world to come and be blessed in him. It's the reason why Christians look back to Father Abraham in Genesis 12 to see the shape of the promises But it's also why we look ahead to Jesus where those promises are fulfilled. Because Jesus' plan is to welcome in disciples from every nation, every tribe, every language and every tongue. People just like you and me today. Look at what he says at the end of Matthew's Gospel, printed there on your handout, bottom right hand side. Jesus came to his disciples and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very ends of the age. If you're not a Christian, here's why I'd say to you that you ought to consider becoming a Christian. I could say that you should do so to avoid God's judgment. And that would be true, but it's insufficient. Instead, the reason to become a Christian is because you're being invited to join a worldwide movement and a global enterprise that has been growing for 2,000 years. It's one that cannot and will not fail because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to its head, to Jesus. Jesus is making more and more disciples of every nation of the world with each succeeding year. And even better than a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, Jesus' promise is that he is with us always to the very end of the age. The right response for us is to praise God. And so we're going to do this in two ways today. 
we are going to say together the song of Moses that comes in Exodus chapter 15. Uh, This is the response of the people on that day. And then afterwards, we are going to sing the song of Moses, which is a song that's been written, we did it a few weeks ago, that starts with what God did then, but actually points us towards Jesus. So that's what we're going to do to finish this time together. I'm going to ask you please to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15 to page 98. Uh, It's not going to appear on screen, so you'll need your Bible in front of you. And uh, what we're going to do in a moment is we're going to say verses 1 through 18, and then after that, we're going to stand and sing together. So if you've got your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 15, we're going to start halfway through verse 1 and read through to verse 18. Here we go, together. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defence. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns for ever and ever.